and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, good friend of the program, Coles Wicker, is back. We've got a veritable smorgasbord of topics here, I guess is the way to put it. We've got Tom Thibodeau. We've got Ben Simmons. Uh, we're going to talk Kevin Knox because Knicks fans have demanded to know our take on Kevin Knox uh, in our mentions for a while now. We're going to follow up on Patrick McCaw. We're going to talk about Chandler Parsons real quick. Uh, Jordan Poole and Brandon Clark are on our list as well. We might talk a little bit of draft stuff, but we have such an NBA heavy slate here of things to talk about that I think it'll be more focused on that. But Cole, how are you doing? Uh, I know that the Seahawks lost this weekend. Uh, that That's a tough one, but let me know. I mean, just what are you thinking right now? <laughs> I'm a little low on offensive coordinators right now. I mean, when you have an outstanding quarterback and somehow you run the ball every single time on first down it just gets a little overwhelming but I'm probably still doing a little bit better than Bears fans even though we're all in the same boat right now yeah I I mean it's (laughs) the Brian Schottenheimer stuff was tough uh having said that I was on Seahawks plus two and a half so the fact that Sebastian Janikowski got hurt and they were forced into going for two (laughs) twice really saved my ass I went like five or one or six and one or something in in, in NFL betting this weekend. And then when I think I was probably five games under 500. No, because I I ended up plus this weekend, maybe like three games under 500 in college basketball. So it's just like a very bizarre weekend for me. And then last night we had uh, a star is born somehow lose to Bohemian Rhapsody at the Golden Globes, which is like a genuinely not good movie. Uh, like, I liked The Star is Born. I really liked it. I thought it was very good. Uh, I don't think it's, like, the best movie of the year or anything, but, like, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is not a good movie. It would be, like, the, I was trying to, like, think of an NBA correlation between, like, awarding Bohemian Rhapsody movie <laughs> of the year uh, over A Star is Born. And I think I've come up with if Zach Levine won MVP this year. That would be, that would be like, giving Bohemian Rhapsody... Uh, the uh, the best movie of the year award because uh zach levine very exciting we love the dunks we we love uh very specific parts of his game like we love the rami malik performance in bohemian rhapsody uh but an incredibly flawed player and not someone that should be up for mvp by any sense of the discussion <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen either movie, but going just strictly through your example here, that sounds like a, like a little bit of a travesty. Yeah, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is bad. I was listening to The Ringer's Big Picture podcast this morning, and Amanda Dobbins called the Hollywood Foreign Press Association the people who tweet at airlines. And from having <laughs> worked in Hollywood and uh, having gotten a feel for what their uh, what their reputation is, that, that was pretty right. That, that was pretty good. Um, so let's talk about... Uh, someone who had a bit worse of a day than Rami Malek and everyone involved with Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Tom Thibodeau, Tom Thibodeau, uh, the T-Wolves went out, they beat the Lakers by like 22 points and Thibodeau got chick canned right after, uh, what was your immediate reaction when hearing that, uh, the Timberwolves waited until right now to fire Tom Thibodeau? Well, it was exactly that. It was why now. I watched a little bit of that Lakers game, and that was, first of all, the slate of NBA games yesterday, especially in the beginning, like the Atlanta game against Miami. It was just a really bad basketball, especially for the first half of that game. But the Lakers my, game, my tweet for they did the, not show up. My tweet for the Hawks and Heat game, 
was uh, so the Hawks and Heat were 38 37 at halftime. Nebraska Iowa was like 44 to 40 at halftime. <laughs> An NBA game got outperformed by Big Ten basketball uh, in the first half yesterday. It was. That was just an atrocious, atrocious Heat Hawks game. That's a really tough look for Heat Hawks right there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Thibodeau firing, it was just, it was all about timing. I mean, I think we are all kind of thinking it over time. Like, when is this going to happen? When are they going to move on? When are they going to go a different direction? We were actually texting during that. And you said right away before Woj tweeted that thing about Hoiberg, like, this could be a Hoiberg thing. So I'll let you talk about that. So, yeah, um, you know, Fred Hoiberg has been brought up throughout the UCLA discussions, right? Uh, he's a Wasserman employee. Casey Wasserman is one of the biggest donors at UCLA. Uh, he's one of the most important people involved at the university in general. Uh, that, Along with the fact that Fred has had an incredible amount of success and the fact that UCLA has often looked toward Midwestern, you know, uh, ah, shucks kind of guys to run the program. John Wooden, Steve Alford, uh, etc. You know, that has made people bring up Fred Hoiberg within the context of the UCLA job. So I do wonder if there is something to a week after the UCLA job comes open, the Minnesota Timberwolves decide to try and get a jump on Fred Hoiberg because uh, anyone who knows anything about like the Minnesota front office and their ownership and everything knows that Fred Hoiberg is a favorite of theirs. They really like Hoiberg a lot. Um, in regard to you know, what Fred wants to do. I've heard similar things to what, you know, Casey Johnson has said and what Woj said after that Hoiberg would probably rather prefer to be in the NBA than in the uh, college basketball ranks. Again, Hoiberg is someone who has stated before even that he doesn't love recruiting and that makes it kind of difficult at UCLA. Uh, you know, you really kind of have to be willing to play the game and maybe Hoiberg would be willing to do that if this thing with Minnesota doesn't work out or if an NBA job doesn't work out. But, you know, it's, it's not like a home run at UCLA, I don't think. It's a good hire if they were to get him. But there are questions about like some of the things that Hoiberg brings to the table. For Minnesota, I, I kind of think it is like a really good idea to bring him into the fold, be it as a coach or be it as I heard Woj report that like, you know, maybe it's a general manager position. They're going to split those positions now, which is, uh, thank God, a smart move on their part. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting dynamic in a lot of ways in regard to uh, what Hoiberg is going to do. But yeah, my initial thought, just kind of knowing everything that I've heard around the basketball world was that Hoiberg makes sense with Minnesota in a way that he might not make sense necessarily uh, at UCLA, or maybe it makes a little bit more sense at Minnesota with the Timberwolves. Yeah, we've seen what he's done a little bit with Lowry Markin in, in more of an offensive geared system. And you can see building an offense around Carl Anthony Towns, which is something that obviously Tibbs failed to do with all the shot attempts. We've talked about that in the past. Like Towns would pop up as like fourth or fifth on the team in shot attempts. You just have to build around him as the focal part of your offense. So that part makes sense to me for sure. The timing, again, is a little weird. The Timberwolves two games out of the eight spot in the playoffs, five and five over the last ten there was at least a business element to this, it sounds like. Uh, judging through all the tweets that were made, like Tibbs, there was some confrontation with him and the business side of the operation. So that just goes to show that there's more dynamics at play than just merely win losses and how you coach on the floor. Yeah, no, no question there. That's absolutely always going to be the case. And you mentioned that the Timberwolves is kind of like, realistically turned this thing around. Like you said, they're two games out of a playoff spot, which... 
you know, given where they started this season and given the fact that they traded Jimmy Butler is kind of crazy, right? Um, the other thing that's worth noting in that regard, though, too, is like, so they promoted Ryan Saunders, who is Flip Saunders' son. So there's obviously the emotional attachment there. But even beyond that, like Ryan Saunders is someone that is known throughout the NBA world as a guy that, you know, is expected at some point to be a head coach. And it's coming a lot sooner, given the fact that he's 32 years old than what I think most people anticipated. But he is a person around basketball that gets really strong reviews in regard to what his abilities as a coach or potential coach are. So I would imagine just given Glenn Taylor's love for the Saunders family and for Flip particularly, Ryan Saunders is probably going to get a real chance to win that job, which, you know, again, makes me wonder, uh, is Hoiberg more of a consideration as like a general manager as opposed to a coach? I, I don't really have a great gauge there yet, but I would imagine that Ryan Saunders is going to get a chance to win the job. And if they do make the playoffs, like if they are able to uh, jump the Lakers who are right now in the eighth seed or uh, jump Portland, who is four games up on them in the sixth seed, like, I think it would be hard for them to not give Saunders the job if they do make the playoffs. So, yeah, I don't really have too much background on Saunders, honestly. I'm just going through what you've mentioned. All I can really say is not to do the dual GM coach escapade again. We've seen that it doesn't work out in other elements with Doc, for example. They're two very different jobs with two different timelines. So just segment those and kind of run your operation that way. That would be what I would hope happens. Yeah, they're two very different jobs with, you know, to full-time responsibilities, right? Like it is hard to prep yourself as a head coach while you're also trying to, uh, you know, run the basketball operation side and you're hopefully taking trade calls and you're hopefully, uh, you know, trying to scour the free agency market, trying to uh, learn as much as you can about the G league, like prepping for game night in night out and doing all of that scouting for potential player acquisition it's too much for one person to do, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's, again, there's two full-time jobs. Just have one guy do the coach role, and that's a different timeline. You're trying to, I mean, most coaches, most players, as much as you'd like to see, idealistically, a lot of fans, oh, you know, tank, you know, push everything to the long term. Most teams, they compete every night. They're going to try to put their best players on the floor. They're going to try to win games. And the front office has a different timeline. You have to put the organization in perspective and look, you know, five years down the line. So they're just not, they're not the same job. So let's just kind of put a bow on the Thibodeau era of, you know, Timber Bulls and, uh, you know, all of the decisions he made as a GM, all of the decisions he made as a coach. I don't think he was particularly good at either job. Uh, maybe it was because they were split and uh, his time was split and he couldn't really exceed expectations at either job. I know that he's the guy that got them back to the playoffs last year, but like Tom Thibodeau is a defensive coach. First and foremost, like he will be yelling ice, ice until he goes to his grave. <laughs> and Minnesota's defense was never good under Tom Thibodeau. And in fact, we've seen them get like better, I guess, over the course of the time since they acquired Robert Covington and, you know, I guess Dario ever since they got rid of Jimmy Butler, essentially for Robert Covington. But they still aren't even in the top half of like defensive rating in the NBA right now. If you look at last season, uh, Defense was unquestionably the biggest problem. They finished 27th in defensive rating. The year before, they finished 27th in defensive rating. Like, it's hard for me to line up uh, Tom Thibodeau 
being good at his job when or doing a good job, not necessarily being good at his job because Tom Thibodeau is a very smart basketball person, but Tom Thibodeau doing a good job with Minnesota when the thing that he is known for being good at was so problematic and in fact was the biggest problem for the Minnesota Timberwolves during this era. Yeah, it's not like their personnel was outstanding again. Like Towns hasn't really evolved into a plus defender. Andrew Wiggins isn't either. But the idea behind Thibodeau is that he could develop these guys and he could develop those elements of their game and they could become two-way players. And it just hasn't really happened that way. They've done some interesting stuff in the draft. Like this past year taking John Koji at number 20, I thought was pretty smart. Kata Bates G up, I thought was a value play. So they've done some nice things. But overall, you brought Thibodeau in to develop these guys, especially defensively. And I think what he's going to be remembered for is playing these guys, again, too many minutes, a lot of them into, the, into fourth quarters, and then the shot attempts with Carl Anthony Towns. You have guys like Derek Rose from All Crawford in the past who would take former shots than Towns, and I, I just think that's going to be kind of how this is remembered. Yeah, I think so, too, and the fact that like uh, the defense didn't really work out. Um, did any of, I, I guess, like, here's a question. Do you think any of the free agency stuff worked out? Um, you know, signing Gorgie Jang wasn't a free agent, but signing Gorgie Jang to that massive extension is not necessarily something that seems great at this moment. Um, the Taj Gibson deal. I mean, like you sign Taj, like to try and solidify the defense more than anything. And Taj has been like a trooper in his, you know, done what Taj does, I guess. But like he didn't. I mean, maybe he helped Carl Anthony Towns. Like, maybe Carl Anthony Towns would be even worse defensively right now if Taj wasn't around. But, like, he didn't get Towns to, like, that next step by imparting some knowledge. Um, you know, the Jimmy Butler trade, they end up essentially trading, let's say, Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, and Lowry Markinen for uh, a year of Jimmy Butler to get them back to an eighth seed in the playoffs and, you know, essentially getting swept out of the playoffs. Um for then Robert Covington and like Dario Saric, right? Like that's that's not a deal that you typically make, right? Like this is not something that has been valuable for them. And like the Jeff Teague move, uh, Jeff Teague, is Jeff Teague better than Tyus Jones? I think there's like a real valid question there as to whether or not he is. Or has Jeff Teague been better than what Derrick Rose has brought them over the course of the last uh, year? Realistically, given that Derek has been uh, a much improved player from what we could have possibly expected, it, it just seems like everything has kind of gone wrong for the Tom Thibodeau era. Yeah, and I think the trade is the most defensible. Just looking at it at the time sure. and not in retrospect, like I'm always going to try to trade for a top ten player. So, I mean, maybe they had more. They definitely had more access to background information. They knew about Jimmy Butler, of course, via Tibbs. So maybe they should have known that this wasn't going to turn out, and like Butler wouldn't have been a good fit next to Towns and Wiggins from just an approach standpoint. But overall, yeah, I mean, the Teague signings, meh. I mean, like that comes out of the, it was between him and like George Hill, for example. George Hill hasn't been great either. So they were going to spend that off season. They just didn't do it optimally but at the time i didn't really hate the moves i, I mean the, the Todd gibson move at the time it just kind of felt like a culture move and like we need this guy for defense not necessarily a great fit via floor spacing around towns it, nothing's really worked out though. i think that's kind of the bottom line at least they were able to trade butler for someone like covington who i'm really really high on i think he's a great piece both for their culture now and moving forward one of the best team defenders in the league and then getting a guy like dario sarge on his rookie contract i think you can look that as salvageable but it didn't end the way they intended that's for sure yeah it's certainly salvageable and like they have they made the right move to cut their losses and move on from jimmy and get pieces that are under team control and get pieces that are under um, 
you know, good contracts that will uh, actually provide value to them. Like they can move Dario Saric if they want to. They can move Robert Covington if they want to. They can keep Robert Covington if they want to. I would probably suggest in Covington's case that they keep him. But it, it just ended up being a scenario where I don't think that they're any closer. Like they spun their wheels essentially for three years with Tom Thibodeau. Like they're not any closer to competing for a title despite the presence of a Carl Towns that is averaging in a down season right now for many people, uh, 22 points, 12 rebounds, three assists on 50% from the field, 38% from three and 83% from the line. Like Carl Towns is just an absolute franchise player in every way, in my opinion, regardless of what the concerns are with the defense still. And you're still not any closer to getting the most out of that franchise player. Yeah, and that's just the cold reality of the situation is that it does kind of feel like a little bit of lost time. And you didn't really get the development from Towns defensively so far, but he's he's a monster on offense. And I think that whoever is hired as the coach and you know the GM, the goal has to be we have to optimize this guy on the offensive end for sure. So let's talk about uh, our next topic here. We're going to talk about Ben Simmons. That's something that uh, always <laughs> is very well uh, well debated. It always ends up in a calm, rational um, argument. Like it's it's never something that gets emotional, right? Oh no, 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 not at all. Especially after the Christmas Day game against Boston, that didn't get emotional at all. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'm sure it's good. So uh, the argument tends to revolve around. Ben Simmons as a player first and foremost, and then additionally Ben Simmons within the context of the roster that the Philadelphia 76ers have built now, where they have given up legitimate maneuverability and asset value to acquire Jimmy Butler to place next to him and Ben Simmons. Uh, That is, I think, the place that we should probably start is, you know, what do we think of the roster fit right now? And all of this comes, uh, you know, after on Friday, the Adrian Wojnarowski report stating that Jimmy Butler is already like annoyed with the way that Brett Brown is running things and is like openly challenging him in the front office or in the like uh, in the locker room and in film room meetings and everything. So this is where we're at. Like Jimmy Butler does this shit and you have to just kind of deal with it. But I guess that my question here is where are we with Ben Simmons and how he fits on this roster long-term? I'm still fine with it. Honestly, I'm not going to overreact like a lot of people do. And it's like, Oh, he can't be on this roster, trade him and then go spread, pick and roll with Jimmy Butler and Joel Embiid. I'm definitely not there yet. I think there's ways to creatively use all of these guys at once. It's going to be a task though, because whenever you're dealing with someone like Simmons who can't shoot outside 15 feet, you you have to scheme for that. You, because you can't just play him off the ball in the dunker spot every time against games because they're just going to clog the lane when Jimmy Butler's handling the ball or when Embiid's trying to post. So you have to get creative. It's going to be an adjustment process. Ben Simmons is still an incredible basketball player, but we have to know now. We knew that in the playoffs last year that certain teams can scheme against him. They can build a wall in transition. They can keep him out of those high-value shots. In the half court, he can't initiate the offense every time because guys are just going to duck under. They're going to pass him off to Horford-type defenders, and he's not going to be able to finish through contact like that all the time because they're not going to let him build up ahead of steam. So he's a, he's a player that teams, the best teams in the league, will scheme against, and it's going to be up to Brett Brown to scheme back and try to get and devise a scheme where all of these guys can operate and function together. And I do think that's possible. I don't think Ben Simmons is the problem with Philadelphia. I think the problem with Philadelphia is their depth. We talk about how many playoff caliber players you have in your roster. They don't have that many. 
Um, they don't have the depth. They, they can't compete depth-wise with the, the Bucks, the Raptors, the Celtics. And I think that is the problem. And I think Ben Simmons is kind of being blamed a little bit for that casualty and the fact that they just don't have enough guys that can go against these elite teams. So, yeah, I think that that is the biggest source of consternation right now, right? Like the fact that Philadelphia just doesn't have enough dudes. Like straight up, they are playing Jonah Bolden. Uh, like real minutes right now and they are playing Landry Shamit, who has been like a trooper this year and has tried really hard and has been better even than what I think I anticipated at least but like it's still probably not a player you should play be playing like a crazy amount of minutes like 20 minutes a night um you know, they're playing Wilson Chandler like 25 to 30 minutes a night right now. And I'm not sure I've seen enough from Wilson Chandler to really think like he's still a high level NBA player or even like a rotation player. And um, Muscala is playing like 20 to 30. had his issues this season. He's shooting 38% from the field and 33% um, in a normal depth situation. Muscala would probably be out of their rotation right now, but they just don't have enough guys, right? Like they, they don't have enough people to replace him with. So I think that everything is exacerbated by the fact, like you said, that they just don't have the right complementary pieces to surround these three. Like you got the 76ers need two guys that can defend and shoot next to those three players, right? Realistically, you might only need one guy that can defend, but you need two guys next to those three guys who can shoot. And right now they have JJ Redick and, you know, JJ is having an okay season. I would say it hasn't been, you know, it's basically in line with what you expect from JJ Redick at this stage of his career when he's 35 years old, but they don't have high. And then they additionally don't have the follow up six through, you know, 10 guys that can come off the bench and make lineups like that work. Yeah, hundred percent. And you see that against the best teams. Like I watched them against the Suns the other night. They beat the shit out of the Suns in the first half. Like Simmons and B, they just killed those guys inside. And that's going to happen because they're really good. But when you play against the best personnel in the league, they can adjust to that. So that's the problem here. We're talking about Simmons relative to the highest levels of play. How does he fit into that? It's not about is he a good player or not. He's clearly very good. Even in the half court, you know, he can be really effective. It's just again, it, it comes down to. Can these guys all function together against the Raptors, against the Bucks, and against the Celtics, especially the Celtics being probably the worst matchup for them in the league? And that's where we see all this Ben Simmons fallout. It's like, can he function you know, in the playoffs? Can he be a winning kind of player? And I think the answer is yes. It's just going to have to take some scheming around. I think Philadelphia really needs a guy like Zaire Smith against the Celtics. I mean, that's been pretty evident. They just need somebody who can guard because they're so stretched for those guys with Simmons. And now, at least now they have Butler, right? Because Butler can guard a Kyrie Irving. He did probably the best job I've seen anybody do on Kyrie during the Christmas Day game and it still didn't matter at times because Kyrie is just ridiculous one of the all-time shot makers but they need more guys who can guard on the ball and play both sides of the floor because because like you said as good as Shamit's been he's been about as good as you could hope really shot the ball well off movement he's just really skinny he's not gonna be able to guard these bigger wings uh Furkan Korkmaz same issue they can't of course Markel Fultz being out they just waved Demetrius Jackson. They work at a play. And they didn't have any use for like a third point guard outside TJ McConnell, who has his own problems. Nobody guards him. We saw that in the, in the Celtics game of Christmas. Like they were just giving them the Tony Allen treatment in the corner. So I think most importantly, it's just they just don't have the personnel right now. They don't have the depth. They don't have the depth and the firepower to go against these elite teams. Yeah. And like uh, the Demetrius Jackson thing, Demetrius Jackson got a deal in China and his 45 days on his two-way were coming up anyway because like of course it was and, and like at the end of the day they just needed to move on from that guy like yeah. he probably just needed to end the two-way there um in regard to just 
I mean, like they're plus defensive players. This is something that I mentioned whenever uh, they acquired Jimmy Butler. Like everyone was like, the defense is fine. They have like the best defensive trio of stars in the league that you can have. Like you have a really great team defender in Ben Simmons. You have a great on ball defender in Jimmy Butler and you have a legit defensive player of the year uh, in Joel Embiid. But the problem with that is that in today's NBA, which is so switch conscious and NBA offenses in, uh, you know, offensive coaches and schemers are so good at getting the matchup that they want. You're really as good as what maybe not your worst defensive player is on the floor, but you're probably as good as what your second worst defensive player is on the floor. And too often with the 76ers, their next best defensive player on the floor is like TJ McConnell, who is undersized or Wilson Chandler, who isn't quick enough to guard guys on the perimeter anymore, or Furkan Korkmaz, who is too skinny or Landry Shamit, who's too skinny. Like you said, like they're starting to play Jonah Bolden a little bit, and that's really helping their defense, I think. Um, but Jonah is also shooting like 10% from three or something and uh, just isn't a valuable offensive player. So you take that away on that end. So like it's, it's just really, really hard to build a like top five, ish which is what they need with this roster nba defense when you really only have like three or four good defenders yeah totally agree and against a lot of regular season teams again it works just because you're not gonna have teams that can really exploit jj reddick or their fifth defender whether that be landry shabbat they can probably get away with playing those guys against a lot of them but if you're looking at what matters for this team why they made the jimmy butler trade it's to win in the playoffs and they're gonna get exploited I mean, we know that their personnel, if they roll out this this roster right now and they don't get anybody in the trade or the buyout market, they're they're going to be playing a defensive liability on the floor basically at all times. They have to play Redick. They need him offensively because he runs all these two man actions with Simmons and with Embiid. They absolutely need his offense because he's th- the best offensive player outside of their best players. So they, they have to incur that trade off already. And they don't really have. Uh, a fifth guy maybe Wilson Chandler becomes that he plays better minutes that's probably their best option right now just because he's a big body who's not going to get just completely pasted inside but he's not the most agile defensive player on the perimeter so they really just have to evaluate their roster moving forward and try to make the best possible deal for the playoffs hopefully they can come up with something uh, they, they still have assets they have the heat pick they have things they can move so we'll kind of see how that goes yeah so let's kind of talk about Ben's fit within all of this, I guess, because that is where we really, uh, you know, have to go, I guess, with all of this. Um, cause that's what the topic was originally. And, and I think that the best way to do that <laughs> is to talk about where Ben Simmons is as a player, just in general, uh, Ben Simmons is still just very good at basketball. And I think that not enough people talk about that, right? Like <laughs> people focus too much on the negatives with players generally, I think. Yes. Um, and like, don't look at their positives uh, on the floor enough with Simmons. The issue with all of this is like, you look at what his numbers are. He's averaging 15.9 points, 9.2 rebounds, 7.9 assists on a 59 true shooting percentage. The number of players at any age who have done that in this, in a single season, Wilt Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and Nikola Jokic is doing it with Ben Simmons right now this year. Uh, Chamberlain did it at 30. Oscar did it at 24. Uh, Larry did it at 30. And Magic Johnson did it at 22. And look, like these guys all were just much better scorers in general than what Ben Simmons is now. But I think it shows how rare 
and how unbelievably uh, difficult it is to find the skill set that Simmons brings to the table from a production perspective. And we're not talking about a guy who you know does all of this offensively and then takes something off the table defensively. He's actually an unbelievable defender as a team defender too. So like he's probably what, like a top 10, top 15 forward defender. If you want to call him like a big defender, which I tend to uh, in the NBA. So it's hard for me to just look at all of this and go, yeah, Ben Simmons, you know, he's uh, they, they really should be looking into moving him right now for a rental in Anthony Davis, because even though Anthony Davis is great, he still has one year left on his deal. Ben Simmons has potentially six years of team control left whenever you max him like this is we need to focus on the positives of what a guy brings to the table and then find a way to surround and cover over the negatives of the player and minimize the negatives of a player uh, by surrounding him with other players. So yeah, I think that the takeaway here is definitely not that Ben Simmons is not a good basketball player. He clearly is. He's got many strengths. And that's something that I think people maybe devalued in the draft process as well, looking at just the weaknesses of the jump shot and where does this guy fit? You know, what is his role? He can do so many different things on the floor, and he's so good that you just have to kind of build around that. You have to build around most players in the NBA. It's a little bit harder when the player can't shoot. And that's something that, you know, Simmons might have to end up doing if he doesn't become like this crazy outlier finisher. We've talked about kind of the inconsistency in his physicality in the past, some of his, you know, hand use. That's been a big topic is what hand does he finish with, all of that stuff. We've talked about that ad nauseum in the past. But this year, he's kind of reduced his pull-up jump shooting. So he's only two for 25 in the half-court shooting. I mean, that's just not getting it done. Like, it just seems like he's lost even some of those momentum he created last year as far as just having a shot that he could get to at times that would at least function as an emergency option. So he doesn't have that this year. But your overarching point is exactly right. It's that this guy's very good. It just takes a heightened scheme and personnel to optimize him because he can't shoot. Yeah, and I think that the thing that worries me most about this trio playing together is not something that a lot of people talk about. Like I'm much more worried about like the egos of Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid and Jimmy (laughs) Butler playing together. Cause like all three of those guys consistently want the ball. Um, They're all very big personalities, right? Uh, We we now have evidence also that like Jimmy Butler is, you know, it's not to say that Jimmy Butler is a bad teammate or a good teammate because there are people on both sides of that spectrum who have been his teammate who have come to his defense and now who have complained about having him as a teammate, right? Like that's a, that's a fair characterization. Yep. What we think, what I think at least we can call him now, we can call him a defight, a divisive teammate, right? Like he is probably going to cause division of some, of some sort because he just is that guy who will grind gears within locker rooms. That is difficult whenever you're trying to build a cohesive locker room. Um, Ben Simmons is a guy who, you know, thinks of himself as a superstar. Uh, Joel Embiid is already a superstar, in my opinion, and rightfully thinks of him as a superstar and has this outsized personality. That stuff all plays into everything, right? Um, And the fact that, like, Jimmy Butler is already, like, calling out Brett Brown in film rooms and stuff like that is concerning to me, I guess, even more than the fit on the floor is. Because, like, I assume that Elton Brand and Brett Brown, honestly, given the fact that he's playing a pretty big role in all of this uh, in terms of player acquisition, like, I assume that they're going to figure all of that out. I I just kind of do. Like, they're good enough at all of this to, uh, or I guess we don't really have the evidence of this, but, like, I assume that given how smart 
their front offices as a whole, because uh, they do have smart people that work there, that they'll be yep. able to figure out the on-court side of things. To me, where all of this could blow up is like off the floor with the personalities they have in play. Yeah, definitely. 100% personalities is going to be big here. Of course, anything with Jimmy Butler interacting with young players now is going to be something of note. I I think you even see it reflect on the floor, though, as far as how they're used. Like maybe at the end of the games, the best option to utilize all of these guys is to run a pick and roll with Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons and space Joel Embiid out to the corner for three. So you give Simmons all this room to roll. So if they switch, then you have Butler who can attack off the dribble. Um, You can have Simmons who can post up and pass out to these guys. But that goes into all of the ego. Just Embiid want to be the guy who just kicks to the corner. You know what I mean? And not be the focal point as far as him being in the pick and roll, him being in the post and utilizes the primary option. So I think that's how you can see it manifest on the floor. But that's an, another vehicle they can use because they can utilize, we've talked about Simmons in the past as the screener. That That is an option, especially down the stretch of games. They're not going to do that all game, of course. They're not going to just put MB to the corner. But when they need a basket against the Boston types and they're scheming against them a certain way, maybe they go to something like that if MB is cooperative with it. Yeah, uh, we'll see how that all plays out i guess is the best way to put it because we don't have enough information to really go crazy on it yet like there's just not enough uh to like really discuss yet on this we'll 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 figure it out as they get into the playoffs and they get into higher stress situations but uh one thing that stress causes is hair loss and 66 percent of men lose their hair by the age of 35 the thing is though that when you notice hair loss uh it's really too late already if that hairline is slowly starting to creep backward and you start to have ball spots how are you going to feel a year from now whenever uh, your hair is gone like look i I'm dealing with this right now. My hair, it's slowly but surely going away. The solution is 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Uh, thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. These are well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair Uh there's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits. You save hours by going to 4 It's so easy. If you order now, my listeners will get a trial month of hymns for just $5 while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash game theory. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash game theory. 4 slash game theory. You'll get that $5 trial month of hymns right now. Now, uh, Cole, let's move on. Let's talk about Kevin Knox because Knicks fans are already getting on us because when we did our rookie, uh, discussion thing, uh, we just didn't mention Kevin Knox and it wasn't like, I didn't mean it personally, at least this is a slight to Kevin Knox. I'm sure you didn't either. It's just like, I I wasn't really watching the Knicks a ton at that point. Like I, I don't enjoy watching the Knicks this year. I will just say that. Like I was watching a little bit for Emmanuel Moutier, but like I wasn't, zoning in on Kevin Knox and look like you'll say like, yeah, you're like a national NBA person. Yeah. But like, look, it's hard to keep up with all of that. And then additionally do what I do with college basketball. So I didn't mean it as an oversight. I just genuinely did not watch Kevin Knox for, I guess like a month we'll say, or like probably more like a month and a half. I will be honest and say, um, I've watched like Alonzo Trier and enjoyed the Alonzo Trier experience. I've watched Emmanuel Moutier and broken him down. And like, you know, within that saw some glimpses of what Kevin Knox was doing. But at the end of the day, I'm just not going to talk about people on the podcast that I don't know enough about to talk about. Right. Um, 
Cole, I, I imagine you kind of feel similarly. Yeah, and I, Kevin Knox didn't even start the season healthy. Like that's another thing is I watched a lot of NBA before college kicked up just to get a baseline for these guys, and he wasn't playing at that time, so that kind of caused me to you know come off of that for a while. I ended up actually watching the night we recorded that podcast. I think they played the, the Hawks, and I watched them that night, so I had some perspective then. But at the time we did the podcast, yeah, it wasn't anything intentional of course it was just I, I hadn't watched a lot of him and i didn't have a ton to say frankly yeah exactly and you know in kevin knox's case why he has become such a point of discussion i guess is the way to put it is that over his last 12 games knox is averaging uh, 18 points while uh, also posting six rebounds uh and shooting 39 and a half percent from three uh those are awesome numbers for a rookie. Those are awesome uh, scoring stats, and he's doing a great job of getting out in transition. He's knocking down shots from three. I totally understand why Knicks fans are excited about him. I think you and I are a little bit less excited. Just like a, not to say like he's playing poorly or anything, but when I watch him, like I, I just come away thinking that there is still some there are still some things missing uh in regard specifically to the questions we had about him entering the draft he's always been kind of the same guy to me he looks better when he's making shots that's what he does he, he shoots threes you want to get him volume attempts he gets to his floater game he's taken 48 floaters this year it's kind of the same thing we saw at kentucky you know there was a brief hiatus in summer league where he had some of these really athletic plays, these slashing aggressive plays, that was more in transition though in an open court. I thought he looked a little bit more athletic, but really he just looks like the same guy to me that he was, and that's fine. I I like Kevin Knox as a prospect. Somebody made a poll about him versus Rui Hachimura. Who would you rather have as a prospect? I'd rather have Knox because I trust the three-point shot a lot more. He can get him off in volume. He's a good shooter. So when he makes shots and the ball goes in the basket, he looks like a scoring type. He's got a little bit off movement, a little bit off the dribble long-term. That's kind of what he's always profiled for me as is an off-ball score type. But when the shots don't go in, I don't really know what else he does on the floor. He's not a good passer. He's not a good defensive player. Uh, he's not a good finisher right now. I mean, he's third percentile around the basket in the half court. He's 35% at the rim. That's something that we've seen before. He's just not – he doesn't know how to finish there yet. He doesn't have enough craft, doesn't use his left enough. Maybe that comes over time. But this is not a lot for me to say outside of the fact that, yeah, this guy has a really projectable shot. I think he's going to shoot. He's going to be like this off-ball scoring kind of combo forward. But he doesn't really do that much more on the floor when the shot doesn't go. Yeah, and right now he's in the 18th percentile shooting off the dribble as well. So, like, you're not even talking about um, someone who's like a pure shot creator himself either i think that's exactly what you're getting at in terms of being an off-ball scorer um the stuff around the basket is what concerns me most because even in college even being like an athletic six foot nine guy that you would think would really succeed around the basket at that level and look like there were issues there with kentucky's roster construction last year right like they had all these big guys and uh, they didn't have a ton of floor spacing but even last year like he wasn't a crazy good finisher he was like at 56 percent in the half court last year that's like a average-ish number but for a guy who's six foot nine and athletic it's not what you would expect from that um i don't know like i think he's gonna be a good off-ball scorer like you said and i think that he's gonna be you know maybe a borderline starter I agree with you in terms of like comparing him to Rui Achimura. Uh, I, I would rather have Kevin Knox. Like if we go up the board, maybe uh, in terms of players that you would rather have, uh, would you rather have him or like, I'd probably rather have him than Kevin Porter Jr. Right now, honestly, just like we don't, I don't think we know enough about Kevin Porter yet. I'd rather have him than like Romeo Langford. Uh, I'd probably rather have him than Keldon Johnson. Even I really like Keldon Johnson. So like if he was in, 
like 2019 draft, I think he'd be like a top six ish guy, top seven ish guy. Um, like, I, yeah, it's actually a good question. Would you rather have him or like, give yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know exactly what to do with Knox relative to this class. Like, I want to say he's probably like a top 10 ish guy just because of the safety. That's what I've always liked about Knox. I don't really see a super high ceiling like a lot of other guys do as far as like this high self creator. I've never really seen that role for him, but his role is so projectable. And it, I don't want to say easy to fill because that kind of denounces a lot of his abilities, but it kind of is mm-hmm. right away. Like, what he does well, you can do right away in the NBA. Like, Mikhail Bridges, those kind of guys who can just play off the ball. And he's, of course, not the team defender that Mikhail is, but just those off scoring types the shooters they can always find a role and that's what i've always liked so much about knox it's really fascinating to see where he go like kind of comparing draft classes and stuff i'm not really sure yet because there's so much uncertainty still with 2019 i guess i have a different perspective on knox and just I, I like the floor a lot more. I know he won Eastern Conference Player of the Month, and that's kind of what generated this buzz. It's like, this guy's killing over there. Yeah, if you watch all the rookies right now in the league, I think it's pretty obvious that the best rookies are in the West. So that's, it kind of, like, Knox got a lot of credit for being the Eastern Conference Player of the Month again, and I think that it's pretty obvious that if you watch, like, the, the, three, the three or four best rookies right now are in the West. That's not a knock on Knox. It's just the fact that, you know, he's in a watered-down rookie conference right now. Yeah, and look, I I feel like we're being negative on Kevin Knox, and I, I don't mean to be that. Like the other thing to remember too is he's nineteen. Like he's I think the second youngest player in this class behind Jaron Jackson. Is that right? I think that sounds about right. Yeah, he's he's definitely one of the youngest for sure. So like if you told me that his body fills out, if he gets to be like six eleven and is doing the shit that he's doing now, like different player, right? Like if he's still growing, like player. I've I've heard rumors that like that is a possibility. Um, if he's that, like then this is like a totally different discussion. And the fact that he's still so young presents a you know just because like you say that you know you don't really see that upside for him right now, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, there is reason to believe that he could just physically get bigger, or he could uh, just being as young as he is develop more strength and be able to take contact at the basket and become just like more comfortable with his body, for instance, and have slightly better body control as you go from 19 to 22 years old. The fact that he's already producing for the Knicks gives him such a, such a baseline in terms of being able to prove himself as more than what he is now going forward. Um, Yeah. I think that if I was like looking through the 2019 draft, realistically, I think that Kevin Knox would be a top five guy in the 2019 draft. I, I feel pretty, pretty good about that, right? I think that's fair. I, I probably wouldn't go that high, uh, but I do get the allure. Again, I, you just know what you're getting with Knox, and I do think that has a lot of value. Like you said, if he gets to 6'11", he's a really good fit with Porzingis offensively. We should mention that. Like I, I love yeah. that fit, the 4-5. I mean, defensively, it's a little bit concerning with the rebounding and that really set protection instincts and that kind of stuff. But offensively, that could be a terror. Like that kind of shooting on the floor, especially if Knox grows a little bit. I still think he can fill that role very ably right now, you know, at the combo forward spot, mostly at the four. But I like him as a team building piece. That's kind of another thing is like at, at worst, you're, you're just getting floor spacing from a guy that's going to knock down threes at volume. That's a very doable fit. So we'll just kind of see where the rest of it goes. I tend not to bet on guys without great feel. And that's always been my concern with Knox is I just don't think he mm-hmm. thinks the game at a high level. But he's still he's in the optimal role to kind of diminish that importance because again it just it's a very easy role for him to fill because he's already so good at it and by the way like we're talking about this 12 game stretch where he's been very very good he has a 51 true shooting percentage over that 12 game stretch and there's still a lot of room to improve there's still a very good chance 
that he will get there. And look, like I think we're somewhat spoiled by this rookie class being as good as it is, at least at the highest yep. level. Like DeAndre Ayton being as fucking amazing as he is, and Luka Doncic being as amazing as he is, and Jaron Jackson being uh, incredible so far. Like th- that's kind of warped things a little bit for the rest of the rookies, I think. Um, most years, like what Kevin Knox is doing would be very, very highly thought of at the highest levels. It's just a little bit different this year. And I think that's worth considering uh, as well, yep. long term. Uh, so I think that's about all I got. Let's do a couple of quick topics here before we get out of here. Patrick McCaw, uh, he signed that two year, $6 million deal, $3 million uh, each year, uh, non-guaranteed with the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers at the end of the day, we thought that they were going to keep him and just like take a $3 million risk on him because good wing help is almost always worth taking a $3 million risk on. Um, they ended up waiving him. They're interested in signing him back. Uh, it looks like, but it is just interesting that essentially what has happened here is the Cavs just like doing Bill Duffy a favor by getting him out of the Warriors, uh, restricted free agency issue and that's exactly what happened clearly i mean they jacked up the offer just to disincentivize the warriors from matching and then waived of course with the thought process of why should we pay a player three million a year where we could have him for the minimum i think that's exactly what happened here it was, it was a favor to the agent yeah i think that that is uh and also like i think part of it is they probably got dan gilbert to go along with it just to like throw a dart at the warriors <laughs> be like yeah screw you guys um, cause like at the end of the day, like it still costs them $350,000 or something. Right. So like, that's not a, uh, not an insignificant sum realistically. Um, you know, maybe they do just sign him back for the minimum and end up getting him at like a, uh, more interesting or lower cost. But I would rather have a guy like McCaw on a two year, $6 million deal where I get the second year of team control than a one year, like minimum deal where like, I just give him a trial this year, especially when the second year is non-guaranteed. So at the end of the day, like I would have just kept him if I was Cleveland. I agree with that because we talked about surplus value before and like you, you lock him in long term. Maybe he, he does really well this year. And he turns into like this really good rotation player. Then you have some value in the contract next season. And I think they ended up signing campaign. Is that correct? To a 10 day? Is, is that right? Yeah. It's not great. Um, like, so, so you essentially uh, use the roster Patrick, spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, for Patrick McCaw to sign campaign. Not great. Not a great idea, not, to be honest. Um, unless your unless your sole purpose is to tank, that's not a great idea. It's it's not good. I mean, it's already kind of a rough watch with Cleveland and how their offense works. So putting campaign to that, I mean, that's a different discussion entirely. But yeah, I mean, for the point of this discussion, I would definitely rather have Patrick McCaw and give him a shot than campaign, who we already know just kind of can't play. Yeah. So like Joe Varden, who is as connected as anyone up there, obviously in Cleveland, uh, Joe Varden explained the campaign signing as, uh, hold on, I'm pulling it up right now. Cameron Payne is coming to Cleveland to take responsibility and pressure off of Colin Sexton. Part of that is Delhi's sore foot has kept him out. How this all looks, we'll soon see. When Larry Drew wanted to bench Sexton Saturday, he literally had no point guards to play instead. So like, Apparently, they just think they need a warm body uh, who can handle point guard responsibilities. I think I would just like let Rodney Hood play point guard than campaign <laughs> like that. That's where we're at. And I, I think that uh, like Rodney Hood is dealing with like his own like little Achilles issue. Right. Like there's something up there. But like that to compare to where I'm at with like Rodney Hood, like him with Cameron Payne, like that's what I would do. I would rather just play like campaign at point. I would rather play Alec Burks at point as the backup. Um, 
Like they, I'd rather play Jordan Clarkson as the backup point guard. Like this, just do that instead. I mean, they should be thinking about long term getting players on their roster that will be there and not like a short term fill. Just because I, I just don't think that makes any sense. If worst games to worst, just play Sexton. You know, forty minutes a game. I don't, I don't see the harm in that. And then give the rest of the point guard minutes to, like you said, other ancillary guys like Clarkson. We know. I mean, the Bulls aren't cutting campaign if he's good. I, is, I'm gonna give the Bulls some credit here just because their point guard situation has been pretty dire. Like Dunn has played much better of late, but it's not like those guys don't need a point guard. I mean, they're playing Archie Diacono, uh, Shaquille Harrison. Like they need guys. <laughs> so if they're, they're cutting this guy. Play, that's kind of a red flag. <laughs> would you rather play Jerron Blossom game at point guard or Cameron Payne? Literally, you could say anybody in the league, and I'd probably say them over campaign at this point. Like, I, I can't watch any more campaign, man. The, the fact that the Cavaliers are going to run out with Sexton and campaign, and I'm not going to kill Sexton. He's a rookie. But, like, that, that's a pretty rough watch for Cavs fans. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, the Chandler Parsons era in Memphis has, I don't know if it's officially come to a close yet, but it certainly is going to come to a close. Uh, thoughts? I mean, thoughts? this is another unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> It's an unfortunate one that's it's just going to be remembered for his contract really that's that's yeah. it it's it's really unfortunate and I, I don't have a lot of you know inside information on how things went down the relationship but obviously it got to a point where it's pretty contentious as far as between the two party parties parsons and ownership and whatnot it's just unfortunate i i at the time i didn't really like the contract of course because we knew about the medical history we knew about his past teams not really being interested in investing that long term so i do think it was a risky play by memphis and it definitely didn't pay off clearly it was a risky play. I actually liked it at the time because I thought that it, you know, kind of stated their uh, desire to move forward into the modern game. They were getting rid of the grit and grind and they were moving into a modern offensive scheme centered around Parsons and Gasol and Michael Conley and like all of these uh, interesting modern pieces. Right. And at the end of the day, you ended up being correct. Chandler Parsons just couldn't stay healthy. And that ended up being that uh probably i mean this sucks for chandler and like it's great that chandler got his money uh and there's no way that you know anyone should really like go at chandler for this it's an organizational decision to give him this money not uh like if you're offered 80 million dollars to play in the nba tomorrow you're going to accept it even though you know you're going to fail as like a you know layman out on the street like it it just sucks that that's going to be what he's remembered for i guess uh playing so poorly because uh like with houston and dallas he was actually a really useful valuable player yeah this is a guy who had like a lot of interest on the open market i remember he almost signed with the blazers and stuff like he was coveted he was a good player you know like he had that combo forward ability he brought legit skill level at like 610 you don't find a lot of guys like him so i do agree it's unfortunate people shouldn't get they should never get mad at players for taking contracts i mean that's just kind of absurd unless the player is like Kobe, for example, and he gets the max and then he bitches about the team not being good enough in a salary cap era. It's like then you can kind of take shots a little bit. But if you're Chandler and, and, and two teams are going to pay you the max, like you're going to take that. Right. No question. The last thing here, um, just kind of looking at Memphis's situation uh, in regard to their cap sheet, I would imagine that they probably. Just like the way teams tend to handle this, realistically, they tend to stretch these contracts. What do you think they should do with Chandler Parsons? I hate stretching contracts, and I just don't think they're at a point. I mean, I know they think they're competing right now, and and they've played pretty good. I mean, lately they've dropped off their play, but I I think they have to look towards the future and not stretch for any kind of short-term game, frankly. I I just don't think it's going to make the difference in the Western Conference right now. And I know know they have Gasol and Conley in their primes. I just don't know what the feasible option is. I, I just never really advocate for stretching a contract unless you really know what it's getting you 
So in this case here, um, you know, they have 75 million guaranteed next season to Mike Conley, currently Parsons, uh, Kyle Anderson, Jaron Jackson, uh, Wayne, or no, Selden's gone. I'm sorry. Uh, and they have Dylan Brooks on like a 1.6 non guarantee. They have Ivan Rab on a 1.6 non guarantee. And they have, uh, Javon Carter on a 1.4 guarantee. So, they have 75 million before they account for the Marcus all option, which I think is like a very interesting contract scenario right now, uh, that is kind of going underrated around the NBA. Does Marcus all decide to opt in or does he decide to try and test this free agency market and maybe sign like a 360 somewhere, which, you know, I think might actually happen for him. So I would understand them looking at this scenario and going, let's stretch this contract. Let's get like the 14 extra million to play around with next summer in case we need it, like with Mark leaving and like trying to compete. But if Mark leaves, you're probably not trying to compete anyway, I guess, for another year. So I don't know. I think if it was me, I would not stretch it. I would just like eat it and then eat it for a year. But my guess is that they probably will because they see this as one of their last two or three seasons, really one of their last two seasons in 2020 and 2021 to compete with the Gasol Conley core. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that if you're just judging them by their actions of the past, they are very win now. They're trying to win as currently constructed. So I think whatever they have to do to do that and optimize that, they're probably going to do. I just don't personally agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, all right. The last couple of things we want to talk about here. I want to talk about Jordan Poole. Um, you've been kind of high on Jordan Poole as a draft prospect. Uh, I would say since the off season, realistically, like, I don't know if you've actually said, have you said that publicly that you kind of are a little bit in on Jordan Poole? I think I've made reference to it at some point on Twitter. I just, I was kind of enamored with the talent he displayed last year and yeah I did watch him in the offseason kind of watched him back and I was like there's more to him than the role he was in last year so over Jordan Poole's last uh I believe it's 10 games now uh he is averaging 17.2 points 3.9 rebounds 2.4 assists on 58.7 field goal percentage uh 54.4 from three and 83 from the foul line he's not getting to the line a ton but uh Nonetheless, Jordan Poole has basically developed into the prospect that realistically could have been hoped for uh, coming into the offseason. And he was someone that was like 101 on my most previous board. Uh, someone who like I just left off because I thought there were people more likely to declare for the draft. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. I think he's like a top 50 prospect just in this draft. Like that is maybe it's just like me having caught up on him a little bit and like really watched uh, a little bit more of his take over the past, I guess, weekend realistically i've decided to catch up on michigan a little bit more they went through that stretch where they played like binghamton and air force and western michigan and uh then i went back and like i just didn't watch them during like the purdue northwestern south carolina stretch and like i watched them and he's really fucking good like he i think he's like legit a top 50 prospect that we have to take seriously as a 2019 prospect and i totally agree and i think that you're seeing the talent start to come out like i thought at the beginning of the season he didn't really command that role like he was kind of passive he, he wasn't as aggressive as a scorer as a creator you still saw the flashes of playmaking i think he's one of the most underrated passers in the country he actually has legit anticipation in pick and roll like i watched his possessions and synergy even last year like he, he makes some passes and some reads that a lot of guys can't make of course you look more at the shot profile that is what he's known for the shooting 
during the beginning of the season, I thought he was a little bit too kind of catch and hold. Like he would catch and jab you a couple times, maybe take a step back, but ultimately he wasn't being decisive. And then yesterday's game against Indiana, for example, we saw things we had not really seen from him consistently. He was split and pick and roll. He had this really nice Euro step finish, this reverse layup that was just like, holy shit. Like, that's what I've been waiting to see from him is like the slashing upside because he's not an incredible athlete. He's a good athlete, not a great one. Doesn't have an incredible handle. He's got a good one. But the shooting is really his main allure. I mean, he's been so efficient this year. He can shoot NBA level threes, NBA range threes off the catch on step backs. Doesn't get a ton of separation on step backs. It's, it's, pretty good it's not great but there's a lot to like there's there's a lot of talent for a six five kind of combo guard so the question that i've gotten a little bit more recently is who is the best prospect on michigan they have Braz Dacus, who is interesting uh, as like a combo forward who can step out and shoot as like a catch and shoot advantage score. They have Poole, who's just this awesome offensive creator. And then the guy that I've had highest, uh, I guess, throughout the whole season up until now where I'm questioning it is Charles Matthews, who is one of the best wing defenders in the draft. And I don't know if he can shoot is the problem, but I might be willing to just take the chance. Like he's a top 40 guy in this draft to me with Jordan Poole. I'm starting to think he's their best prospect. Like, I think I am at the stage where I'm pretty comfortable saying that Jordan Poole is Michigan's best prospect. And I would probably say he's going to enter my top 40 or so prospects now. It's fair. Honestly, it's so fascinating with those guys just because they're so different. Like if shooting touch, he might be like a top 10 prospect for me. Like that guy is elite on defense. He's Charles got the Matthews, best movement skills in the draft for wings by far. Yes, he can really move his feet, man. Elite level movement. Pretty unprecedented for me. I was taken aback yesterday watching some of that. Like his ability to move in space is spectacular, but he can't shoot. How valuable is the package, right? And I think Brasdakis, we talked about him on the last podcast. I think he's kind of safe. He's really polished, good off ball score, can shoot off the catch. Uh, I don't really see a ton of upside with him necessarily. He's just a bigger body, so I think he's a little bit safer than a Jordan Poole, who I don't think plays to his eyes defensively. Like, Poole's not the most imposing defender. He lacks strength. I think that's kind of an issue overall. But, yeah, I I think that they're just so different in how they profile to the the next level. Like, if you want the defensive player, go with Matthews. You want kind of more of a shot maker, go with Poole. And then Brasdakis is more of the combo forward type. Yeah, no question. I think that, you know, kind of another thing that is worth bringing up about all of this is that Brasdakis is like five or six months older than Jordan Poole. <laughs> uh, Brasdakis is a Jan- <laughs> yeah, January 8th, 1999 birth date. And Jordan Poole is a June 29 or June 1999 birth date. So yeah, I just think that Jordan Poole is their best prospect followed by Matthews, followed by Brasdakis. Um, yeah, he, he's someone that I wanted to talk about because I actually just really, really like his game right now. Um, and look, he's in the middle of a hot streak and like, this might seem overreactionary to like a 10 game stretch, but I kind of don't think it is given what we've seen just like from his overall talent level. I just think the tape kind of backs it up. Frankly, um, it's not so much just looking at a small stat sample. It's like it, he's really playing well. You can see him just kind of coming into his own. He's developing. He, I mean, he's a younger player, like you noted. So he's going to make progressions. And there's just a lot of untapped talent there. You could see that last year. Like in, in the stints that he was actually allowed to create and he wasn't just this off ball kind of shooter type, he was pretty effective. I would like him a lot more if I really believed in the defense. I think that's something I just don't really. Uh, I just don't yeah. think he plays to his size at 6'5". If he did play like a 6'5", legitimate defensive player, I would have him significantly higher just because then he gets really, really interesting to me. But there's still a lot to work with. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Um, 
The next guy I wanted to talk about was Brandon Clark. Uh, I just find Brandon Clark's like archetype very interesting. And I was having a discussion with Ben Rosales, who writes about the Lakers and is in law school more than anything. Like I've followed him for a long time. He's a really, really smart Laker fan. Um, and he mentioned like, why is I can't believe that Brandon Clark is not thought of as anything more than like a guy in the 20s in this draft class. And I understand that to an extent. Uh, if you look at his defensive profile, he's a really, really good weak side shot blocker. Uh, super smart at going straight up and down. I wrote about Clark uh, recently. You should go read it at The Athletic. Uh, I think it was like the beginning of December or so. I'm a big fan of Brandon Clark as a prospect. I still can't get him higher than like 22 to 25 on my personal board. Just because I, I think that there are very real concerns about what the offensive game is and what the offensive role is like right now based off of what his skill set is i think he is like a six foot eight 225 pound five at the next level um there's like a lot of jordan bell there i think and look like the reason jordan bell is not playing a ton is he plays for the warriors and like he's in and out of steve kerr's seeming doghouse for random reasons uh but at the same time like i like jordan bell a lot I think a guy like Jordan Bell goes in the 20s in a draft. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's a good short role player. He's a switchable defensive player. Um, Jordan Bell obviously has some tendencies to, like, overreact to everything that happens on the floor and, like, over-rotate. And then he'll, he's like a crazy leaper. Like, he leaps at almost everything, trying to block it, which is a problem. Um, Clark doesn't do that quite as much, but I also don't think Clark's movement skills at laterally are quite as good as what Jordan Bell's were. Jordan Bell is like a special lateral athlete as a uh, five switchable player. I think Clark is good. I don't know that he's quite as good as what Bell was. I think that might be fair. I went back and watched Clark because that's what I was looking for as the lateral agility to see how versatile he was defensively. And I was actually kind of surprised. Honestly, he moved better than I thought he did. He had more twitch than I initially thought yeah. based on the games I watched. My issues with him defensively are more to the physical tools. It's the strength and it's the lack of imposing length. I think those two things really limit you as a perimeter defender. But as far as movement ability, I think he stuck with guys much better than I anticipated. So I'm definitely going to watch more of him as the season progresses. But I, I definitely get the argument for sure. I do think he's a little bit underrated as far as his ball handling. Not anything great. Like, he doesn't have a pull-up game, clearly. But Oh, no, but, like, he can attack closeouts. Like, he can actually handle the ball, and his spin move is awesome. He has a skill with the ball in his hands, actually, I think. Exactly. And I think we've seen some some flashes of passing. More of that was at San Jose State, I think, than Gonzaga. But you still see it. Like, you see the skill level. It all comes down to the shot. If we're we're talking about somebody who can shoot, then we start getting into, is he a four conversation? And that becomes a lot more amenable, I think, to a lot of different uh, you know, teams, draft guys. Yeah. And if, I think if, for him, if, I wrote about good. If Brandon Clark can shoot, he's like a top 10 pick. Exactly. And I think that's what I'm getting at here is <laughs> like that. I have him as a lottery guy because I kind of believe in the touch. We talked about this in the past podcast. Uh, I wrote a piece about this recently for the Stepien. like just looking at his floater touch over time, even at San Jose state, when his mechanics were broken, he had that kind of shot put release. Like his touch was really good. He, he had a ton of finished runners. He's he shown that this year as well. If you believe in that, like, I think that he's an inefficiency in the draft because I think maybe off the catch over time, he can get there. We've seen that and his, his mechanics now aren't very good. They're like, they're pretty rigid, but they're a lot better than what they were. <laughs> so the guy with his work ethic and touch, if you really think that's possible to develop, I think that he becomes easily a lottery guy for me. Yeah, it's tough just because he's 22 and our shot sample of him statistically is still what it is, right? Like he is not a guy that is 
just realistically at this stage a shooter, right? Um, the floater touch is something you and I talked about two podcasts ago, and I think it's like it's just something that like we kind of threw off the wall and thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, and I think it is really interesting. Uh, the fact that he does have really good touch around the basket, the fact that he can uh, shoot it a little bit from like mid range ish areas is interesting to me. He's an unbelievable finisher at the basket. He's so explosive. He has great body control. Um, it's not just dunks. Like he can maneuver around guys in midair because his hang time is so good. And his body control combination is so good. Um, he's like, he's a very real NBA prospect. It's just like, if you think he is a, even if he ends up being like a 32% three point shooter, which is a significant step up from where he is now. Would you agree with that? Yes. Like he's still probably more of a guy you want at the five. It's it's possible. Yeah, I I agree. I think there's enough skill level and enough de- defensive versatility where you could play him at the four. I, I do think that he has that in his range of outcomes. It just comes down to I'm not saying because he has touch he's he's going to yeah. shoot and he's been great on floaters. It's just something we have to entertain in the analysis process. Just bringing it up, unearthing right. it. It's not like this guy's a total non-shooter who might never shoot. Right? He has terrible touch and he has broken mechanics. It's like he has fixed the mechanics enough to. To where maybe it, it could happen in time but like you noted we are dealing with an older prospect so the chances historically of course if you were to bet on him shooting you probably wouldn't just based on precedent and what we know about the drafts but i do think there's outcomes where he does and if he does i think that he's going to be a huge 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 deal yeah it's <laughs> it's very difficult to project that i think just long term you're just kind of trusting that this guy is um gonna work his ass off and there's reason to believe that like i full-on believe after talking to people around him after talking to him he's a super super smart kid and he's like an extraordinary worker uh there's a real chance of that happening like and for teams like the knicks who already have porzingis and for teams like the timberwolves who have carl towns like if you took him at like 15 or so like right around the lottery which is what you're saying i totally get that like i think that's actually a really really interesting uh fit it's all situational he so many prospects in this class are situational he is one of the most situational prospects Yes, 100%. And I think it's 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 hard with him just because I feel like if you do buy him shooting, which is hard, but let's say you do and you're really optimistic about the work ethic and the touch, like you're going to rank him higher. Just because if you, if you really believe in it, you got to kind of go all in in some respects. But if you don't believe it, I, I could see having him, you know, 20s, late 20s or whatnot. I think that's much more feasible. It's hard to kind of juggle the two, right? And I feel like 15, 16, kind of maybe the late teens is kind of sitting on the fence it's like when do i assume the risk of this guy shooting or not because it's yeah. not a great bet but it may be it might be the upside in this class is good enough to take the dice roll on so it's just something we can consider is the fact that you know there is some cause for optimism this guy has qualities that could translate to nba3 i think solely off the catch i'm not talking about anything off movement anything right. off the dribble really it's just basically we're talking about a catch and shoot guy but that allows him to play the four yeah, in, in more lineups, and that makes him more versatile, and that makes him a much more alluring player. The last guy I want to talk about is Cam Reddish. Um, I don't know what to do with Cam Reddish right now. Uh, he was just a disaster against Clemson. He went one for eight from the field in 16 minutes and turned the ball over six times. Uh, he had four turnovers like before the first TV timeout, it felt like, uh, against Clemson. He struggled against Texas Tech. He's been really, really bad basically since the start of December realistically um 
I still just have no, his situation is so fascinating. So convoluted, uh, just playing out of position for the college level, in my opinion, and doing things that he's never really been asked to do before at Duke that I don't know what to think of him. But at the end of the day, we're not really getting much production out of Cam Reddish right now. If we're, if you're watching Duke and like, like right now, Jack White is a more productive player for Duke than Cam Reddish is because you can trust Jack White to defend. You can trust him to knock down the open three, probably a little bit more than you can trust Cam Reddish. Um, it's a very convoluted and complex situation. Yeah, and I'm one. I actually think that he should be crushing his current situation. I know it's different going from being the guy with the ball all the time to not, but this is kind of the role that I see him playing at the next level. I don't think he's like this primary creator type. I think this is the problem a lot of people made with Ingram. They're not similar players like precisely, but I want Reddish kind of in this role where he's an off-ball kind of scorer, where he can really bring value to playmaking to that. So he can really attack closeouts. He's a good passer, a good handle, but just getting threes off at volume. He should be crushing this role. I mean, he really should, efficiency-wise and just scoring-wise, yeah. playing playing off of RJ, playing off of Zion with how much gravity those guys command how much they have the ball Trey Jones like it's a pretty optimal situation for him in my opinion and he's had, he hasn't made shots recently I didn't watch the Clemson game yet so I don't have too much context there but for me overall I kind of just view this as maybe I don't know how good of a shooter he is but if you buy him as a shooter his fit in the NBA is still so easy to me I'm just kind of worried that teams are going to make the mistake of oh this guy's like this incredibly high upside guy um this this dynamic score on the ball when he doesn't have the first step he's been bad finishing around the rim at least getting there like we see the flashes as far as i I think his stats are actually okay when he gets there they're not great but he's not explosive I, i think that's pretty clear so you can still project him based on his current role like i think there's a lot of overlap between what we're seeing now and what we're going to see ideally at the next level he's just not playing well right now There's a lot of overlap, but there also isn't in terms of the way that the spacing on the floor is just because he doesn't really play a ton of minutes with what I think is their optimal lineup, right? Like Duke in general has not played like the four freshmen with Jack White all that often. If you look at like, for instance, who plans like I forget what the exact number is, but it's like probably something like 60 possessions this season or something where they've played those five together. Um he's often the guy spacing the floor so that when he drives, like you're, you're always going to have the guy probably sink off of Zion Williamson. You're always going to have the guy sink off of Marquise Bolden, or uh, even honestly, like you're probably comfortable sinking off of RJ Barrett and Trey Jones to try and stop him. Uh, The guy that you don't sink off of, or at least the guy that defenses yet haven't sunk off of is Cam Reddish. So as a finisher and scorer, it's not an optimal situation, But I agree with you that he should be performing much better in this situation than he is right now because it just hasn't been even valuable at all. Like he's like getting benched regularly by Coach K. Like he should be playing at least 30 minutes a night. He should be playing uh, good defense uh, within a team concept, which for the most part, he's been pretty okay at. He should not be turning the ball over six times uh, in any game realistically by trying to do too much you should not be shooting one of eight from the field um and like over the last five games and over the last six games like it's just been it's been too common it's been too uh, too much of an issue because if you look at uh those last five games he's played an average of 23 minutes a night he's shooting 22 percent from the field and is averaging 7.2 points and four turnovers a night like those are not the numbers of like a top five pick. Like we can, we can kind of split hairs and be like, yeah, guys go through bad five game stretches. But like, I don't know if I've ever seen a top five pick go through that bad of a five game stretch. Yeah. 
here. Like, there's clearly some cause for concern, and he's not playing well right now. I think that's pretty clear. I do think he'll turn it around, and I still think he's going to play much better in the NBA than he does in college. You mentioned the spacing. I definitely think that's a concern here, but I still think we can kind of deduce takeaways based on his expo- lack of explosiveness. He's just, he was just an overrated athlete coming into the draft. He's much more fluid than he was explosive. He got some Tracy McGrady comparisons. Like, if you watch McGrady when he was young, like that was just uh, that was a ridiculous comparison. I think people just kind of have to check their their prior on him a little bit because I do think he was maybe overhyped as like a, kind of an Ingram level athlete when he, he wasn't this transcendent athlete overall. So I think now maybe the reality is catching up with a lot of guys and he's just playing really bad in that stint. So I'm going to be patient with him. I'm not like hitting the panic button with Cam Reddish. I, I think that if you look at historically how big wings like this who can shoot, and I still believe in the shooting, um, translating yeah. who are good like team defenders, like Otto Porter, you can go down the list. Like these bigger wings, they almost never fail. Yeah, so like I wrote at the beginning of the year, like I didn't see him as like a wild athlete, but I saw him as like a mismatch nightmare still because of the fluidity and the ability to uh, handle the ball and create plays like attacking closeouts and being an advantage score. The problem is that like he hasn't really even been that because his handle is too loose in the half court. That's something we didn't really get a chance to see enough of in high school because they played so much transition basketball and in big open spaces, his handle is actually really impressive for a guy that's that big but it's in the tight quarters that we've seen the turnovers come this year yeah 100 percent. and i think he's missed some passing reads for sure um ben rubin again for the site pointed this out kind of dribbles with his head down sometimes so mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting to look at so he, he misses kind of some skip pass reads i think he d- does have decent feel people point out the assist to turnover ratio being negative it hasn't been good this year i think he's probably a better passer than those numbers indicate especially in a specific role in the nba not as a primary but as like a tertiary ball handler where i'd want him anyway so it's just a really bad time to be Cam Reddish right now. Just There's no really argument for him when you have these kinds of numbers, when he's this inefficient in a role that, frankly, he should be crushing a lot more. It could just be he's missing a bunch of shots, though. I mean, the, the tangential stuff, as far as, like you said, the turnovers, that, that's unfortunate, and hopefully that gets better. But he looks a lot better right now if he's hitting four threes a game. You know what I mean? Right, and like I tracked 12 games of his uh, in the preseason uh, for like his scouting report before he got to Duke. He was 47 assists versus 14 turnovers. So like three to three assists to turnover before he got to Duke. Now at Duke where there's less spacing and just kind of a, a more difficult scheme fit realistically in uh, something that he's never done before, a role he's never played before. We've seen the assist to turnover drop substantially part of me is willing to just kind of let that go like we have a 13 game sample of him being bad with this we have a 12 game sample of him being good with it the more recent sample is against a tougher competition should probably be taken more into account but there is like a dissonance there there's a disconnect there in terms of what we've seen in the past versus what we're seeing now and, and that's our job to kind of bring that to the surface. I mean, if you watch him pre-college, you can't just judge everything on the college sample. That's how mistakes are made. you got to have some kind of context for the player before. And I've made mistakes here before as far as not having enough of a baseline, enough of a prior to understand what the player is. I, I'm fine with Cam Rash. I think he's going to be fine long term. I, I, I've always questioned on the upside with him and the, the work ethic, the motor. I think that's why you see him at five in ESPN's new mock draft, for example. That in conjunction with the recent lack of production. But it's more... More so, they've like people have always had issues with how this guy, like, does he want to compete on a nightly basis? And I think from what I've seen, those observations are valid to some extent. Mm-hmm. When you play like this and you're in an off-ball role, your narrative is going to be like you're drifting. You know, you're not putting all your effort in on a nightly basis. You're not producing. You're just kind of out there on the floor. You're not playing hard all the time. So that kind of that tends to snowball a lot, especially when you're not producing. So I think that's kind of what we're going through a little bit here. 
Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, is there anyone that you want to bring up? I, I feel like I've kind of brought up my three guys. Is there anyone that you feel interested in talking about? I don't know. Based on college, I kind of feel like I haven't seen enough recently just because we had that hiatus. So we're getting into conference play now. We talked about basically all the risers last week. Nothing's really changed for me that much, honestly. Uh, maybe um, we talked a little bit about Jackson Hayes. That's someone who we're, I think we're going to continue to see work his way up boards. I think he's the number one center in the class um, mm-hmm. pretty easily just based on what I've seen. So I think ESPN again had him 14 to the Pelicans today. I think there's a chance that he goes to the Hawks' second first-round pick. So right now that's at number 10. I think he can get up to that level. Had a couple people tell me that he can get up to Washington around the 6. Mark, I think that's getting a little bit too high. Uh, I, I might have him there at the end of the year, but right now, like, I just look at a guy who has foundational athleticism, physical tools, movement skills, great hands. Uh, he doesn't have any bad instincts on the floor. We, we talked about this before. I just think that this guy is someone that but people he, really have he to doesn't have, and take seriously. Yeah, like he doesn't have bad instincts because he like doesn't have a crazy amount of instincts yet. You know, like there's just exactly. like he's a blank canvas in a lot of ways because he's a six foot eleven, just seven five wingspan, crazy athlete. Yep. Um, that's fine. Yeah, I, I I totally get the Jackson Hayes thing. <laughs> what what I keep coming back to is so like you have six eleven, non skilled, really like rim runner, rim protector type in Jackson Hayes. Or you can get a guy like Casey Apollo, for instance, right? Who's like 6'9", 7'2", 7'3", wingspan, can shoot the ball already, can attack closeouts. Um, Pretty tailor-made-ish, if you believe in him filling out his body uh, for like a small ball four role, except you can play big with him while maintaining the semblance of like a small ball type situation, right? Um I think I would still take him over Jackson Hayes, for instance, just because I I buy the modern fit better and I buy his ability to maybe transition to the NBA and get value out of a rookie contract quicker. I think that's fair. It's going to take a developmental situation with Hayes, like we've discussed in the past. I I just think there's a lot of really alluring traits, and we're starting to see that reflect in kind of a lot of the the boards on the internet. Like I know a lot of guys have him top 10 now. I don't think that's crazy. Yeah, like he's for sure, for me, like a top 20 prospect. Like no... No question right now. He's absolutely a top 20 prospect. I'm just trying to figure out like where exactly he fits in there. Uh, it's funny like to compare him with Daniel Gafford last year's. He was last year's Jackson Hayes, basically, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of similarities. I think with, with Hayes, it's more just you have outstanding physical tools and positional right. size. Like this guy is still growing. He could be seven foot, you know, with a seven five, seven six wingspan, and he moves like that. Like he's probably the second most special athlete in the draft to me. I mean, Zion's clearly in like a different galaxy. But when you look at the rest of these guys, yeah. like what Hayes can do on the floor relative to his position, it's just something that I think translates. When you have someone who's that coordinated, talked about that grab and go kind of in transition, like guys like hit like his size don't move that like that he they just don't like he has incredible movement skills it's funny daniel gafford has come back to school and averaged 17 points nine and a half rebounds (laughs) 2.2 blocks a game and has kind of been passed by jackson hayes like I, i don't i don't know which one i like more than the other one right now yet like i think gafford is more skilled than jackson hayes for sure uh and i even thought that last year like you look at daniel gafford like he can actually shoot a little bit uh he's the chance to be like a not a spacer but if you told me he was like an 18 foot shooter where you could uh you know have him pick and roll and pop out to the 18 foot range i would buy that long term and i I think that the big difference is just the quickness i buy jackson hayes's body mechanics a little bit better and the way that he can 
turn his hips a little bit more. I think he's going to be a little bit better defending on the perimeter. Uh, just athletically, it works a little bit better, but they're, they're close still to me. Yeah, I think that's fair in some respects. I'm definitely pro Hayes. Like, I have Hayes significantly higher. Just give me the guy who I think he could be Steven Adams level big. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying he's going to have that t- toughness, but he's going to be huge. Well, you and know what though? I Jackson Hayes comes from like a football man background. Like his dad is the tight ends coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. Like you're, you're not going to like out tough Jackson Hayes, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to compare him to Steven Adams. Who's like the toughest player in the league. Sure. Like he's, I love that guy. So, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm in on Jackson Hayes. I think in a, in a class that we don't really know, we don't have a lot of answers. I might just swing for the upside there as far as a guy who just, you know, has positional size, meets all the benchmarks for athleticism. Maybe he improves. He's kind of a late bloomer. So maybe we see some progression in the skill. So I I would not be surprised again if we saw him get his name called in the top 10 on draft night. I think that it's going to continue to rise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try and write on Jackson Hayes coming up here because like I said, like I think he's definitely one and done if he wants to be, he's definitely like a top 20 guy. Um, on my updated board, which will come out like in a couple weeks now, I'm going to give it a little bit of time um, to breathe, but like he'll, he'll be a top 20 guy on my board. Yeah. I'm going to write about him. I think this week as well, just kind of putting all these thoughts into form. Uh, one other guy really quick on Arkansas. Cause you brought up Gafford. What do you think? Uh, about Isaiah Joe? I knew you were going to bring up Isaiah Joe. He's fascinating, <laughs> isn't he? He's just a chucker. I love it. I absolutely love that he is just shooting shooting 8.3 threes per uh, game right now. Uh, <laughs> how many threes per 40 minutes? We're at we're at 11.7 threes per 40 minutes, but he's making them at 45%, which is awesome. Uh, 38% from two-point range right now. That's a problem. Pretty questionable on the defense still. Uh, he does a good job within their like super aggressive scheme, but I don't know how good he is at like actually reducing penetration yet. Uh, like he gets into passing lanes and is good at uh, like anticipating and creating transition opportunities. I don't really know if he can like drive off of closeouts yet. Even like he's only taking two point six two point attempts per game. Uh, <laughs> definitely a 2020, 2021, maybe even 2022 prospect, but someone who has caught my eye and is very interesting. Yeah, I actually saw him when they played Indiana against Romeo at the beginning of the season. And I it's one of the only times I ever get to a prospect before it becomes like more widespread just because there's so many guys now that, that find these guys even in the summer. So I was like, I saw him shoot the ball and I was like, holy shit, this is a guy. So I was like, <laughs> I tweeted that. I was like, Arkansas has something here long term. So I haven't watched a ton of him recently, but just someone to keep on the radar is just somebody who can really shoot it. Like if he can do anything else on the floor as far as functionally, if he can like run a pick and roll, if he can pass, dribble, play any kind of defense. I know the frame's not like the, it's it's pretty slight. Six six but, foot five, one hundred and sixty seven pounds. He's listed at. God, I, I wish he was like one hundred and ninety, <laughs> man. So bad. Uh, this guy is just. I love this kid. He's shooting everything. He's got great range. His mechanics are incredible. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's just someone to keep on the radar. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a great point about like guys like always just finding these dudes, right? It just drives me crazy when they're like, oh, yeah, like I found X player. Uh, I found Y player. I'm like, no, the guys who cover like like. 11th grade <laughs> basketball and 10th grade basketball like Evan Daniels knows about like players before I know about them like almost unquestionably <laughs> every time right uh <laughs> like John Morant might be like an exception to the rule but you're almost never gonna be the first guy to find things at the end of the day the way that the draft season and the draft process works is you just have to be right on june 22nd or whatever the date is yes that is my methodology i don't even try to get to some of these guys it's like screw it like somebody else already has done it i'm just gonna take my time and get to it when i do 
Uh, I lied. One more prospect really quick just to get your thoughts on because uh, I love please, this kid. He's wait, 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 wait. I have up a page that I wanted to ask you about. I want to see if it's the right guy, if it's the same guy. Hit me. Jalen Pickett? Uh, I, no, it was not going to be him, but I actually tagged him as a multi-year guy. That's Jackson uh, Jackson Hoy's guy. He's been on that for, from day yeah, one yeah. as far as – yeah, so that, that's – I've not even watched him play yet, so I, I got to get to him. He's real, really interesting if he can shoot it. I'm still not super sure on the shot yet, uh, but he can really, really pass it, and he has great scoring instincts. He's very clearly like under recruited, um, for sure. He's like six four, uh, has an interesting pull up game uh, in, in the way that he gets to his pull up. Uh, whether or not he's efficient enough as a scorer yet, I have questions. But he's averaging seven point three assists a game, uh, fifteen points. He, he's a very interesting, instinctive player. Interesting, yeah, yeah. He's gotten great reports from people I trust, so I'm definitely gonna check him out. This is one of my favorite players in the country, though. The freshman. I don't know how much you've seen of him, but Josh LeBlanc from Georgetown. What do you think about him? Oh, I want to. I want to bring up a favorite of this podcast. Uh, Mike Levin uh, reached out to me on Saturday after watching Georgetown and was like, "Is, is like Josh LeBlanc a guy?" Uh, and I'm like. Honestly, I haven't watched enough Georgetown yet to like know for sure, but I've now had like four people reach out to me about him. Uh, he's on my list. I haven't watched a ton of him, so I'm just going to give you the floor. He's so goddamn fun. Obviously, I don't even know how to pronounce his name correctly, but man, the guy is incredible I don't know to either, watch on the floor. Okay. <laughs> he has a killer motor. Like It's one of those motors where it's like a Siakam level motor. Um, he's not the athlete as Siakam is, but like his instincts are great. He's really good as far as making rotations. He just plays his ass off. You know, he's got a little bit of a slender frame. He's more of a five in skill definitely right now, but really, really smart. His instincts pop off the page, and he just finishes plays on a level that most freshmen don't. Like I, I think I saw him within the first two weeks. And I was like, holy shit, who the hell is this guy? And I've been watching him more since because I love it so much. So the the stat profile, just looking at it, and again, it, and the scouting profile that you just described, sounds like Jalen McDaniels, kind of? Yes, kind of similar like that, but he plays harder, like even harder than McDaniels does. Okay, Jalen McDaniels plays hard. I like this now. I'm excited. I'm going to watch him it, this week at some point, probably, I will say. Yeah, I'm very curious on your thoughts there. He's just really fun. I don't know what he is at the NBA level yet. There's going to be some development physically. We'll see if he can develop a jump shot that's any with any kind of consistency. But just someone to monitor as a multi-year guy. I, I just really like watching him play. He's listed like pretty heavy, isn't he? Like I thought I remembered him being like, is he like 235 or something? Like he's, is, is he that heavy? I, he doesn't look like it. I, I have not checked okay. his measurements. He doesn't look like he has that much girth. That was kind of one of my concerns. It's not a bad frame. It's just not something that really stands out, especially for a guy who's going to be kind of like a four or five tweener type. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to watch him. I'm excited. Uh, Cole, tell the people what you've got going on in your life. Uh, tell them where they can find your work. As usual on the Stepian.com, have a ton of pieces this week coming up. We Ben Rubin wrote a piece on T. Stiebel, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, so check those out. I'm going to write on Jackson Hayes, like I noted early on the podcast. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to go about doing that yet, but that'll probably be out by the end of the week, and uh, continue to listen to this podcast. We'll be back later this week. I have something on Jarrett Culver coming on Tuesday. This podcast will come out on Tuesday morning, so... Uh, You'll have that probably available for you by the time you listen to this podcast. Uh, talk to Jarrett. Great kid. Uh, I'm really intrigued, as we talked about in the last podcast, about his translation to the NBA level. I think he's uh, just kind of tailor-made for that level. Um, beyond that, of a couple other things coming. Uh, Casey Apollo is on my list to write about. Um, Jackson Hayes, as I talked about with Cole, uh, is on my list. And then I want to talk about like some guys like Jordan Ford and like some of the way under the radar, Jalen Pickett, like some of these guys that... Uh, 
are kind of sneaking onto my radar. Maybe not top 100 guys yet. Uh, I'm going to put Ford on my top 100, but like guys that aren't getting enough publicity and are interesting as prospects. So uh, keep on the lookout for that. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.